another bonus episode for the bottom of the year, featuring Dad giving a guest talk at our dear friend, Pastor Natalie Hall's Love Teach Heal Academy, a program of theological education intended to inspire, form, and equip individuals to serve as lay preachers and worship leaders in their home parishes. Dad talks about what it means to be a faithful servant of Christ in the realm of citizenship and politics, a fraught topic which he addresses with his usual aplomb. And let's say, all the more timely for a polarized nation heading into an election year. So here it is, Dad at the Love Teach Heal Academy. I'm so glad that everyone is here this evening. Uh, We are going to discuss tonight, in fact, religion and politics, which are the two topics and uh, social mores that suggest we should never discuss in polite company. And it is precisely the focus of our class meeting this evening. So the Reverend Dr. Paul Hinlicky will lead us in this important presentation and discussion about how to responsibly and faithfully broach politics and associated cultural issues from the pulpits that all of us are called to occupy here in southwestern Pennsylvania. Dr. Hinlicky is an internationally known theologian who has published more than 70 articles and many books. He's an authority on the theology of Martin Luther and how Luther's theology played out in history since the time of the Reformation. He also works on the reintegration of Reformation and patristic theology, ecumenical and interfaith dialogue, and is concerned with the interplay between Christian theology and contemporary postmodern philosophy. He's an ordained minister in the ELCA, has served in congregations for extended terms in Delhi, New York, and Blacksburg, Virginia. He was editor of the Lutheran Forum and Pro Ecclesia. Dr. Hinlicky came to Roanoke College in 1999 after teaching theology for six years at Jan Komenius University in Bratislava, Slovakia. So that paragraph comes from Dr. Hinlicky's brief write-up on the Roanoke College website, where he is recently retired from. And I'd like to add that he is my first systematic theology professor at Roanoke College meaning that he is among the teachers who best and first tuned my ear to seek the for you in pinch and promise preaching. He's known, lived, and uniquely understands political circumstances that matter to those who preach. Dr. Hinlicky has recently taught courses that explicitly bridge understanding between Lutheran and Episcopal perspectives, meaning that he's adept to speak to the theological and practical diversity of our group. So we are so glad to welcome you this evening, and we are glad to hear what it is that you have to say about preaching, politics, and culture. All right. Thank you, Natalie. I'm delighted to be with you this evening. This is a topic that has engaged me my entire life. Um, Going back to my graduate school studies at Union Theological Seminary in New York, where I was... um, greatly influenced by theologians that you might know of, like James Cone or Cornell West, uh, very influential teachers for me. Um, But I've kind of developed my own perspective on these things. And so my title of my presentation is a short course in political theology in service of preaching. Uh, We can go to the next slide right away. Okay, Uh, I think it's important to begin by acknowledging the fallacy of equivocation. That's when we use a word that has different meanings to different people. And if you don't specify the sense in which you're using a word, you can create a lot of confusion. And on a topic as volatile as politics, clarity is very important. 
so that we don't get into unnecessary word battles. And this first bullet point comes from a book I wrote. Permit me to just read it. We use the word political in a bewildering variety of ways today. For example, by political, one means public, having to do with matters of common human destiny. Uh, in this sense, the word seems more than apt as a descriptor of the gospel, which is about our human destination in the beloved community through Jesus Christ. Of course, it addresses matters of public concern. Yet, if by political one means power, having to do with the defeat of some and the victory of others, we grow uneasy. We might understand theologically that God's victory for us all over the contra-divine powers of sin, death, and the devil is part and parcel of the establishment of the kingdom of God. But we worry about who gets to parse this victory and defeat. And if by political one means partisan, as in the Inquisition, the imperial conquest comes subjugation of native peoples, uh, we um, positively repudiate political in this sense as an apt modifier of the gospel. Sorting through these various senses of the political today as public, as power, and as partisan, is one of the analytic tasks of political theology, which in the tradition of Paul, Augustine, and Luther is an affirmation in the first sense, the gospel is about public life, qualified approval in the second sense, provided we're talking about God's victory for us all through the cross and resurrection of Christ, but a repudiation of politics in the third sense, if we mean my side wins and your side loses. That's um, at least three different senses of the word politics. Next slide, please. And I'm wondering, can I shrink this camera because it's obscuring my view of the, uh, yeah, that did, okay, that's fine. Okay, and part of the task of Christian political theology therefore is defanaticizing partisan politics. Defanaticizing partisan politics. I might jump down to my fourth bullet point on this slide, the present American danger of Weimarization. Weimarization refers to the German Weimar Republic in the 1920s, in which constitutional democracy broke down. And uh, in that situation of breakdown through the terrible polarization uh, of street battles between the brown shirts and the reds dominated uh, German life at the end of the 20s and the early 1930s. And parliamentary democracy was ineffective. Uh, Hitler campaigned on the promise that he would deliver the German people, <clears throat> excuse me, from, quote, the chaos of parliamentarians, end quote. That, that is to say the democratic political process. And 
included in the danger of an American glamorization with our extreme political polarization is the co-optation of the churches, which to all appearances seem to be the Republican party of prayer or the Democrat party of prayer. Um, and so you wonder uh, what is it actually that the church contributes uh, other than throwing fuel on this uh, fire. So let me back up now to my first bullet point. Theologically, we have to say that partisan politics in regimes of constitutional democracy are expressions of the sinful brokenness of humanity. The fact that we take sides against one another and do battle um, in constitutional democracy is not a sign of the unity of the human race, but of our brokenness. So you might ask then, what is at stake in respecting and cultivating democratic politics if it encompasses partisan politics? Well, the sober answer is that through a constitutional democracy, partisan battles resolve public conflict in non-lethal ways. I know that's very modest, but when you think about what happens with the breakdown of constitutional democracies across the world, you very quickly see the veneer of civilization fade away and violent conflict break out, uh, conflicts that can only be resolved with a violent victory of one party over another. Now this sober analysis, my second bullet point, represents the theological position known as Christian realism. Christian realism is Christian because it acknowledges that human reconciliation has been accomplished in principle in the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. But realistically, it acknowledges that this reconciliation is still in struggle and suffering and not yet in political power. The powerful preaching of the gospel initiates reconciliation in the church as its own public space in the world. The church is to be the politics of reconciliation on the earth publicly. That implies a serious commitment, I would mention, to ecumenism. Unreconciled churches cannot credibly sponsor political reconciliation in society. And the source of Christian realism was America's great mid-century theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, developed this perspective in face of the alternatives of national socialism and Marxism-Leninism in his own day. There the task is, as I said to summarize, to defanaticize partisan politics, to sponsor a politics of reconciliation. Thank you. Next slide, please. Whoops, that's two slides. Go back one. Okay, there we go. Now, I think, you know, it would be kind of pointless for me to spend a lot of time on national socialism, even though forms of fascism seem to be popping up again in present culture. Uh, but it's rather easy, I think, to point out the dangers of fascism or national socialism. 
Um, I think the abiding challenge comes from Karl Marx. And this is a quotation from one of his very early writings. It's got the famous passage in it about religion as the opiate of the people. And this is Marx's rather subtle analysis. Religious misery is in one way the expression of real misery and in another, a protest against real misery. Religion is the sigh of the afflicted creature, the soul of a heartless world, as it is also the spirit of spiritless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. The demand to abandon illusions about their condition is the demand to give up a condition that requires illusions. Hence, criticism of religion is an embryo, a criticism of this veil of tears whose halo is religion. And here as a German uh, Jew, uh, Marx comments on the heritage of Luther. Luther should be sure vanquished the bondage of devotion when he replaced it with the bondage of conviction. He shattered faith and authority while he restored the authority of faith. He transformed Parsons into laymen and laymen into Parsons. He freed man from outward religiosity while he made religiosity the innerness of man. He emancipated the body from its chain while he put the chains on the heart. Very interesting passage and it's worth thinking about in detail. Uh, and I'll discuss it further in the Q&A if it needs more uh, explanation. The simple idea here is that social injustice is so massive that people are miserable and they're also powerless to overcome their misery. And in this situation of powerless misery, they generate religion, which is a consoling illusion. Uh, your reward is in heaven. Uh, there it will all be pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. And this consolation really works to help people get through the, the miseries of social injustice. <clears throat> but at the same time, it's like a narcotic because it, um, um, it um, the con consolation it offers defers people from struggling for earthly happiness. Um, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And so here is a, a, another, uh, let's go on to the next slide now. This is how I would analyze it. In some way, Marx's well-known objection to Christian political theology remains the profoundest of objections because it goes to the heart of things. The problem of human agency in a world in which humans are not finally in control. Well, for Marx, not yet in final control. In other words, the problem of powerlessness, the problem of miserable powerlessness, where is the human agent who can rise up to change social conditions so that misery and religious illusions are no longer necessary? Marx understands the phenomenon of religion 
as thus emblematic of false consciousness, a consciousness that's living in illusions. Following Ludwig Feuerbach, he believed that in a state of self-alienation, humans create images of the gods in order to give expression to their own lost essence. So if humans are powerless, they imagine the all-powerful God. If humans are unloved, they worship the God of love. With these illusory, illusory uh, compensatory conceptions, alienated humanity compensates for its real loss on the earth, worshiping its own lost essence. At this point, Marx added something to Feuerbach's criticism of religion. He says that in this act of worship, the oppressed human being secretly protests against its earthly state of social injustice. Religion, Marx says, appreciatively in dialectical fashion, is the sigh of the afflicted, the soul of the heartless world. While appreciating that, Marx goes on to insist that religion compensates like a narcotic which the powerful classes are happy to see supplied in order to maintain their domination. Since people who believe that they will have happiness in heaven will not fight for it on earth. Thus religion is the opium of the people in a double sense. It is both a comfort for the oppressed under inhuman conditions, but also a narcotic which disables the oppressed from rising up to become agents of their own history. Let's go to the next slide. So what is the issue here? How do, what is the issue that Marx raises for us? In much of the contemporary literature, it's referred to as the political agent or the political subject. Who is the political subject? Who is the harbinger of a new humanity? Who is the agent? that will powerfully rise up to remake society in a more just and humane way. For Karl Marx, it was the exploited working class who had nothing to lose but its change. Stripped of all partial loyalties by oppression, the workers could arise messianically, the proletariat as the universal class which would by revolution bring about a truly human paradise on the earth, freed from partisan agendas and interests. Now notice, Marx sees the problem with partisan politics. That's why he's profoundly anti-democratic. He thinks that we need a thoroughgoing revolution which frees humanity from all partisan loyalties all particular partial loyalties, which have been, uh, as it were, uh, reamed out of the working class by their systematic pauperization so that they have nothing to lose, left to lose but their chains. And as such, they can rise up to create a universal humanity freed from partisan agendas and interests. Well, we've seen in history how that worked out. Part of that sober realization that Marxism Leninism actually led to uh, greater social injustice and terrible oppression 
uh, was the genesis of the so-called new left after uh, World War II. The new left rejects classical Marxism's working class messianism. Mm -hmm. In fact, Vladimir Lenin had earlier with his theory of democratic centralism under the leadership of the Communist Party intelligence, intelligentsia had already rejected working class messianism. The trouble with workers is that they're satisfied with beer and sandwiches. And once they get a little bit of relief from their oppressive circumstances, they want to go back to bowling and, and partying, and they're not interested in revolution. They need the Communist Party to take charge and direct them toward the revolutionary purpose. That was Lenin's um, modification of Marx's faith in the proletariat. But the new left tries to find the political agent in alliances of all marginalized peoples. And that's a lot of what's going on nowadays. Yet this is still a continuation of Marx's hyper-partisan politics by other means. Next slide, please. Now, for us Christians and our theology, we answer the question of who is the political subject in a different way. We speak about the total Christ, Christ the head and his body, Christ in the church, forming a collective person, a collective personality. The true human agent is the total Christ, the collective new Adam, the head with his earthly body, not Marx's working class, but the Galatians 3, 26 to 28, you know that passage in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, no male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. That is the unification in Christ beyond class, race, and gender. That is the total Christ. Now, there's some implications of this that I think are pretty helpful for thinking about a theology of politics. The agent of the new humanity is not then the individual Christian believer, who as an individual remains caught up in the earthly strife between contending powers. And as a result, never integrates perfectly the gift of Christ with her own discipleship until perfectly healed and made whole in the light of glory. For the individual Christian, it's a struggle, and it remains a struggle. And we go two steps forward and one step back. The new and true agent, however, the total Christ, already now includes us struggling believers. And as individuals, we truly participate in the righteousness of Christ, the justice of Christ, the goodness of Christ. But only together with all the others, from baptism day to resurrection day. It is these together through time and space who form the public political body of the new humanity in the world whose head is Christ. And I think you know that in your own experience as ecclesial Christians, taken as a whole, we really do Christ. We feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner, express reconciliation, light up the candle of hope in the darkness of human sin and injustice, 
hold the state accountable to its divine institution for civil justice, all the while recognizing that the final revolution comes from above as daily we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Publicly then the church nurtures the safe political space for the reconciliation of interests in the pursuit of non-lethal resolutions of social conflict. Safe political space provided by the church is the beginning of social justice. During the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 uh, in Germany, the placards held by the German people protesting the last vestiges of the Marxist-Leninist regime said in German, die Kirche, die Zone der Freiheit, the church, the zone of freedom. The church had provided the political safe space for people to come together under an oppressive regime to talk about a better future. Safe political space provided by the church, the total Christ, the body of Christ, is the beginning of social justice. Next slide. Now, in order to turn our attention now from theology to preaching, uh, how is the total Christ communicated? Well, first, let's remind ourselves of things I'm sure Natalie has been inculcating among them. First, the pinch. The God of the prophets has a controversy with his people. That's the pinch of the Torah. But God has acted in Christ to give his broken people exactly what he has demanded from them, that they may live by his spirit, sanctifying themselves and the world around them. The indicative of the good news thus precedes, crowns, inspires, and informs the indicatives of discipleship. For preachers, this is extremely important to remember. Otherwise, your sermons turn into nothing but a lot of moralizing. In plain English, Christian preaching recognizes that you can't squeeze blood out of a turnip. You have to fill the tank before the engine can run. Political preaching builds up the total Christ by announcing ever fresh the good news of the Easter vindication of the crucified Jesus as our promised future in the beloved community of God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's the indicative. That's the statement of reality that is enunciated by preachers preaching the gospel. What that unpacks is this. Jesus is risen, and therefore in him who gives himself to you as a pure gift, you get daily to die to sin and injustice and to rise up to newness of life, righteousness, and peace. You get to become a living member of his body, which is the temple of the spirit, you get to be a little Christ to the neighbor in need, 
just as Christ has been the good Samaritan to you. Together you get to be the temple of the spirit, the space on the earth where political reconciliation actually transpires. Next slide. So let's get a little bit more practical. Our context is the uh, endangered constitutional democracy in the United States of America. How concretely to preach and teach Christian political theology in the USA today. First, just preach the gospel so that the indicative of God's act of reconciliation in Christ is announced in a penetrating way to generate, sustain, and direct any imperatives. Use theology to instruct, enlighten, and inform democratic political engagement. The point is to empower the auditors of your sermons. The point is not to, is never to humiliate them, oppress them, or chastise them in a scolding way. The point is rather to fill the tank, empower and enable with the gospel of Christ and the promise of the Spirit, and use your, your mind, your theological minds, to instruct and lighten and inform. Now, that means that you have to acknowledge our concrete context in an endangered constitutional democracy. Now, admittedly, one might preach and teach otherwise in an authoritarian regime, autocracy or fascism, whether on the left or on the right. Remind yourself and your auditors regularly that what is at stake in constitutional democracy is non-lethal resolution of real social conflict, as opposed to the violent resolutions of various authoritarianisms. Next point, as preachers, respect the consciences of your auditors. Preachers have no right or Christian authority to decide for others in advocating what may in fact prove to be only their own sinfully partisan politics. Preaching should not even resemble partisan propaganda, the repetition of cultural war cliches, deceptive or manipulative advocacy trying to engineer a particular behavior. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Therefore, submit not again to a yoke of bondage, empowering and liberating people to conscientiously live as stewards of God's creation. Good preachers of the gospel, as the power of God to save, recognize that the fruit of their preaching mm -hmm. is the sovereign spirit of God. It's not in my power as a preacher to cause anybody to do anything. Rather, the duty and power of Christian proclamation is to expose decision-making to the God of the prophets who searches and judges the heart. That is the pinch of Sermon on the Mount preaching. And such preaching 
teaches conscientious responsibility to God for this world as his creation. Respect conscience, enable and empower conscientious relationships to God uh, for one's little place in this world as his creation. Now, it helps to keep our sanity here when we get frustrated with the vimerization of American political culture and all the stupid bromides and platitudes that pass uh, for political discourse in this country. So for the sake of your own sanity, recognize that partisan political opinion within a constitutional democratic framework is always a blend of ideological conviction and sinful self-interest. And these are forging shifting alliances. Recognize also the psychosociological insight that any society will be a tug of war between conserving and innovating forces. Such recognitions relativize partisan fanaticism and encourage compromise and peaceful reform, reform as public alternatives to revolutionary violence. Again, whether from the brown shirts or from the reds, from the left or from the right. In your preaching, moreover, finally, focus on culture. Culture is the soul of political community. It is here where the civic virtues of courage, prudence, moderation, and rationality must be inculcated, but also chastened by the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Do that instead of preaching partisan bromides, which shed heat but never light. Focus upon the desires of the human heart. Probe, pinch, whether or not the desires of your human hearts are bound to the double love command, to love God above all and all creatures in God. That's the Torah. Next slide. So we, and I'm happy speaking to Episcopalians who have such great respect for the Eucharistic liturgy and its integrity. The church gathers as the church on the day of the Lord's resurrection to be reminded eucharistically of the inauguration of the reign of God through the passion of Christ, proclaiming his death until he comes again in glory. That's what grounds us as the total Christ, Christ and his people. That is what the Sunday Eucharist is all about. From the Sunday Eucharist, the church disperses in its members into this world still oppressed by spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. They disperse into the various stations in life in which they are found and often bound to remake these stations, locations, vocations, actions of sanctifying the secular. That's the church dispersed in mission ministry into the world, sanctifying the secular. Discipleship, therefore, is not church-centered in the sense of being an exclusively religious concern. 
One follows Jesus in the power of his spirit into the workaday world of Galilee. Discipleship takes place in the secular realms of sex, marriage, and the family, economy and labor, government, education, and also institutional religion. Preaching sends disciples into these arenas of responsibility to God for the world with grace that disrupts business as usual, as will happen when people behave conscientiously responsible to God for his creation in those places. Next slide. This is the doctrine of vocation grounded in our baptism, otherwise known as the priesthood of all believers. A major misunderstanding, let me tell you, I doubt any of you have this misunderstanding, but let's just say it, say it for the sake of clarity. The priesthood of all believers does not mean that I am my own priest for my own self, but it means that as a baptized believer, I get to be a minister of the grace of Christ to others, especially those in need, body and soul. I get to be a mediator of divine agape love to those in need. That's what the priesthood of all believers means. So that in their daily work in the world, they see a place where they get to sanctify the secular. The sanctification of the secular is what Christian political theology is all about. Now, I would like to acknowledge here, and we can talk about this more in the Q&A. Presently, we have some huge difficulties uh, with the doctrine of vocation, which tells Christian people to go into their place in the world and sanctify it in the power of the spirit, make it holy, uh, by being a little Christ to the neighbor, an expression of the total Christ. And here are the huge, several of the huge difficulties, there may be many others, but two I'm particularly keen on is the explosion of technological power outstripping moral constraints in human government. And here I reference a brilliant book by a Harvard professor, Shoshana um, Zuboff. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future and the New Frontier of Power, which very simply is talking about how the internet has now been uh, captured in the interest of um, a form of advertising and marketing, which goes way beyond predicting um, um, behavior to cash paying advertisers to actually shaping or forming behavior, guaranteeing advertisers that their bucks can buy big business for their, uh, the commodities that they're marketing. And of course, this is deeply disturbing if our innocent use of the internet has now become a vast network of surveillance, which um, provides such data which can be so powerfully analyzed uh, that it um, can begin to shape our behavior and form our thinking. That's a huge difficulty. 
The other book I reference is by David Graeber. You can read the title. I won't say it for myself, but it's also along the same lines that technology has advanced to such a point um, that almost 50 or 60% of the jobs that exist are simply a redistribution of the wealth created by technology to pacify the masses and maintain social control for the technocrats that have uh, harnessed this immense technological power. It's very hard to say to someone who thinks that my job is pointless, it accomplishes nothing good, it may actually be doing some very bad things to society and tell them to sanctify that station in life. Next slide. These kind of problems that I just mentioned are for the classroom, not for the pulpit. And I guess one of the points I should mention here is there's a difference between preaching and teaching. And teaching on many of the, the details and controversies and so forth really belongs more in the classroom where there can be a give and take, uh, back and forth, an exchange of views. In the pulpit, one is responsible for, for proclaiming the word of God, the gospel of God, and addressing it to these questions of culture and vocation that I've talked about uh, previously. So I would recommend to preachers that when you get to the point in your preaching where you're getting to matters that you know will be controversial, that you invite people to safe spaces sponsored by the church where there can be frank and honest uh, discussion of conflicting interests and social conflict um, in which the common being in Christ can provide the context in which these um, questions can be pursued mutually and uh, solutions explored in common. We should say a few words before we conclude about the relationship of church and state. And this has to do with the question of politics as power and the way in which partisan politics uh, is often understood as a winner-take-all search for state power. From a Christian theological point of view, this is really ambiguous. As a monopoly on the means of violence, that's what the state as an institution is. It's a monopoly on the means of violence. As such, the state is a morally ambiguous institution. And as such, it cannot analogize the kingdom of God. In its very essence, as a monopoly on violence, the state is vulnerable to the lust for domination. And we have the words of our Lord. You know how it is among the Gentiles, how they lord it over one another. It shall not be so among you. That's the difference between church and state theologically. Against all zealotry and utopianism, Christian realism does not believe, it disbelieves that secular politics can ever by means of violence, including state coercion, usher in the kingdom of God. 
something far less that can accomplish a reasonable peace and a reasonable, if rough, justice. Instead, the church, through its public preaching, teaching, and behavior in the world, summons the state, now notice, to its own conscientious responsibility to God, to establish peace and the common good through its undoubtedly rough, that is, coercive justice. It's not the business of the church to do the state. It is the business of the church to call the state to its conscientious responsibility to God for peace and the common good. This limitation on the scope of partisan politics reflects the difference between the righteousness of God and Christ. What is that? The righteousness which gives to sinners exactly what they do not deserve, namely the grace of acceptance, pardon, and peace. That is the righteousness of God in Christ. That's different from the possibility of civil righteousness, which would give people in a secular regime, regardless of religion or any other differentiations, exactly what they do need and deserve as precious creatures of God the welfare of peace, prosperity, safety, and freedom of expression. Next slide. So in conclusion, Karl Marx was not wrong to dream that the of the state withering away in his workers' paradise. But it was a dream. It was a secular miracle, a secular utopia, which in the point of historical fact, rationalized the most vicious violence of state terrorism in the historical Marxist-Leninist regimes on the interim way, supposedly, to the workers' paradise. We must drive the people to happiness with an iron fist. That famous statement of Napoleon is taken up by the Marxist-Leninists along these lines. In the meantime, the state has to be a total, a total institution backed by ruthless coercive power, driving the people to happiness. And when finally socialism is achieved, the state will wither away. In Christian theology, however, the state is God's emergency order. constraining chaotic violence with organized violence. That's a brutally realistic assessment of the institution of the state. It constrains chaotic violence with organized violence. Just look at societies in which the state has broken down and look at the terrible uh, chaos um, and violence that prevails in places like that across, across the globe. Partisan political contests for power ignore this moral ambiguity of the state to their own peril and to ours. Christian realism does not ignore this moral ambiguity. It embraces it. It embraces it in the spirit that, um, nevertheless, I must work in the state and its institutions for the common good. Uh, and that entails getting my hands dirty 
on occasion by using the coercive mechanisms of the state. We actually do that every time we pay our taxes, don't we? I conclude with Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer for democratic citizenship. God grant me the courage to change what I can and the serenity, serenity to accept what I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference. That's a prayer for democratic citizenship and perhaps a goal uh, for political preaching from the Christian pulpit.